Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, before we launch into the episode, just one thing, we have a sponsor, drinkhrw.com. This sponsor is all about the magic of molecular hydrogen, and they make the most incredible molecular hydrogen products. They make molecular hydrogen tablets that you can easily just drop into your water every morning as you start your day. They actually even have flavored ones in raspberry flavor, if that's your jam. I like mine uh, plain with a squeeze of lemon, but I also love the raspberry. They even have tablets that you can drop into your bathtub to soak to get a whole body treatment of molecular hydrogen and tablets you can drop into a bowl of water and apply to your face. And so you might be sitting there wondering, so big deal, why would I drink hydrogen? I mean, hydrogen is the smallest molecule on the periodic table. Who cares about hydrogen? Well, let me tell you, you care about hydrogen. A lot about what we talk about in this podcast is about health span and lifespan. It's about aging well. It's about longevity. It's about managing your body system so that you can look, feel, and perform your best. And molecular hydrogen delivers on these points like nothing else does. Think about this. Molecular hydrogen actually combats oxidative stress as well as supporting a healthy inflammatory response. Now we know that inflammation is at the root of virtually every major disease out there. We also know that it makes us basically age faster. So I would qualify molecular hydrogen as a preventative aging supplement, and it is one of the easiest, healthiest, best out there with zero negative side effects. It indirectly mitigates the damages of those three issues that ultimately lead the way in virtually any disease state and fundamentally are the driving forces in why we age. We're talking imbalances in oxidative stress, in inflammation, and as well as increased insulin resistance. So you don't really have to take my word for it, guys. You can go to the drinkhrw.com website, and I'm going to tell you that it is one of the most incredible repositories of research and articles all about molecular hydrogen. And you know what I love about this company is they don't just run around telling you how great molecular hydrogen is. They don't just cherry pick the best research articles. They're full on, flat out, pretty honest about this article, this clinical trial. Well, it didn't show us much yet. Here are the flaws in it, or here's what we think. It's an incredible resource, but I can tell you that Whatever it is that you're dealing with, there's probably a clinical trial going on somewhere looking at whether or not molecular hydrogen can be helpful. And I will tell you that in my practice, I've seen it be helpful to all kinds of people, people who are suffering from joint pain because molecular hydrogen is able to target inflammation, because it's able to support a healthy inflammatory response in the body, and it also promotes antioxidant and oxidative balance. You guys, you don't want to just be taking antioxidants by the handful. You want something on board that's going to help to keep you in balance to not too high, not too low, just keep you in that Goldilocks state. So like I said, I have clients who were blown away about how effective this molecular hydrogen, taking it every day, sometimes soaking an injured joint 
in molecular hydrogen water, what a difference it made in their mobility and in their ability to recover from their injuries and even also, of course, from workouts. So you're going to be hearing me talk a lot more about molecular hydrogen in the future. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I encourage you to go to drinkhrw.com forward slash superhuman, and you can use promo code longevity10, and that will get you 10% off everything that you purchase. And you can try molecular hydrogen for yourself. And by all means, reach out to me and let me know how you liked your molecular hydrogen experience. And by all means as well, please, please, please check out their website. It is one of the most incredible resources that I've seen for molecular hydrogen research. So thanks for being here today, guys. Enjoy the episode. Hey folks, just a little bit of housekeeping before we launch into the episode. Please remember that all of the information provided in these podcasts is for information purposes only. We are never offering treatments, cures, whatever, for any kind of disease or medical condition. Anything you hear about here is going to be intriguing. There's some research around it, but make sure that you check with your medical provider before you go off and do any of this stuff for yourself. All right. So enjoy the episode. And also, if you're looking to connect with me for any reason, with your comments, questions, whatever it may be, you can reach me through my website, which is now natnidham.com, or you can find me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group, or on MeWe in the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Group. And of course, you can also follow me on Instagram, which is at Natalie Nidham. Natalie is with an H between the T and the A, the second A. So thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you guys. Enjoy the episode. Okay, guys, welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited today to welcome Ryan Smith to the show. Ryan is a graduate of Transylvania University, which is one of the, what is it, oldest, six oldest universities in uh, in the States. Um, And you graduated with a degree in biochemistry. Uh, then went on to complete the his USMLE, which is some other really fancy thing that only smart people do well, which apparently <laughs> excelled at. And then um, opened up, went on to open TaylorMade Pharmacy, which was a compounding pharmacy, and exited out of there in 2020, the year of change <laughs> and many <laughs> other things. <laughs> and then decided to start True Diagnostic, which is the company we really are going to talk about today, which is in such a fascinating area of, I don't know, longevity, anti-aging medicine, I guess we could call it. So after all that, welcome to the show, Brian. It's yeah. so great to have you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on and, uh, and, and spread the good word about epigenetic methylation. Yeah. Well, it, it is a good word. And I think that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's such an incredibly it's such an a very active area right now. Like I think that it's and it's snowballing, right? Yeah. I I think it was like maybe five years ago. Could you even do this kind of testing yeah. at an affordable price? I mean, maybe you could with like thousands upon thousands of dollars. But how, <laughs> like how long? How long has it been that we've actually been able to, on a commercial basis, is figure this stuff out? 
Very, very recently, I, I would say that we were really one of the first companies to market with a broad scale methylation test for biological aging. And, and you know, it's the reason for some of this, I would say that this new growth in this area is due to two reasons. One is much like genetics were originally, this is a very expensive test to do. And now the ability to actually test these markers is becoming less expensive and therefore more available, but also the ability for computer learning and artificial intelligence to, to sort of read the insights from these correlative data has sort of created the perfect storm for, for not just epigenetics, but all sort of multi-omic data sets uh, to, really, to really impact health and know how to read them uh, for different health-related metrics. So this is still very, very new. And a lot of what we'll talk about, I think, today will probably run into areas where we just don't know the answer because it is so new. But, but with that being said, it's still very, very exciting. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. So before we launch, which we're about to do, um, what brought you to this? Like, I, <laughs> I mean, so, you know, biochem guy, yeah. compounding pharmacy, totally get that. But what, what drew you to this area other than the fact that it's completely fascinating, new and exciting? <laughs> yeah. The, you know, well, my first love, I think, was, was a lot of the peptide uh, material, right? Looking at how some of these new and, and maybe even not so new, um, you know, innovative uh, sort of products could then change health. And mm -hmm. particularly in, in a preventative fashion, right? I, you know, I think that whenever I was sort of exiting medical school, the the uh, the one thing that I sort of was really upset about was sort of how medicine was going, and and uh, I didn't even mm -hmm. know this idea of integrative preventative medicine even existed. I think if I had known the sort of the cash pay, you know, functional medicine world that had been around, I would have probably continued and tried to do something in that nature. But I didn't at the moment. I was used to the sort of the traditional healthcare model, and and I didn't love that. And so once I sort of was introduced to this space, it was it was sort of a, a playground for me because we got to actually you know prevent it, prevent disease before it happened and really make an impact before some of the the really sad and, and emotionally heavy uh, outcomes started to happen and so that was really exciting to me but obviously being on the forefront you also have a need for really objective data um, mm -hmm. and, and and I've sort of uh, over the years is learning about a lot of these products definitely considered aging itself as a disease um, and 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 with that being said this is really the first way to really accurately manage or measure it so that you could appropriately manage it for the future and so uh, really it all sort of changed for me, at first I heard about it being used for things like, uh, you know, dating refugees to see if they were, you know, adults or minors um, and therefore eligible for asylum or being used at crime scenes to tell someone's age. Uh, but for me, it really changed with, in September of 2019 with the publication of the first interventional trial showing that they could reverse this epigenetic aging metric. Uh, with that, wow. it was sort of the proof of concept that this can be changed. And with that being changed, you know, sort of being able to treat aging and extend lifespan and extend health span uh, really got exciting. And so that's sort of whenever I uh, uh, first got involved in the subject and, and I'm happy to uh, uh, have, have done a lot of things since and to hopefully push this build a little bit further. Yeah, that's, and you know, you bring up such a great point, right? Because I get you, I, with my clients, you sometimes get people who are like, I don't want to know. Right. And I and when I offer testing like this to and I've now since you and I first spoke a little while ago, I've talked about this with a few of my clients, because what an amazing metric to use to gauge these the the success, if you will, or the progress that a person is making as they're making all these efforts, they're personalizing their diet, they're changing their lifestyle, they're sleeping more, they're meditating, they're, you know, they're exercising, like all of these different things that we tell people is going to help them to live longer, healthier lives. But now we actually have a metric that, that can measure 
But the thing that I will always say to people is you need to know that you're not a person that if it, if your first test comes back and it's not what you want to see, you're going to be able to sleep at night because if all it's going to do is drive up your stress, we're going to step away from the table. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, and that's what we really, we we try and add so much context to this metric for that Mm -hmm. exact same reason. It's not about where you are. It's about what you do to influence change, always competing with yourself to get your, your biological age as low as possible. If you're doing that, then you're, uh, you know, it sort of all links back to again, aging as a disease, but uh, your age is aging itself. Even chronological age is the biggest, um, risk factor for almost every chronic disease out there. And so, uh, you know, now that we have a better way to even track age, if we can influence that metric, then we can influence the risk of all chronic disease. And that's extremely powerful. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what you, you know, and it's interesting that as we are defining aging as a disease, I think it's important to tell people that this is the kind of disease that you can, you can change, right? Mm, It's a bit like a type two diabetes or frankly, even cardiovascular disease to a point, if it's not too advanced, we can pull you back from the the, the edge of the cliff, right? There's things that you can do to improve your outcomes. So the, the statement that this is not a foregone conclusion, that this is an understanding of where you are at this place in time so that you are possibly more motivated and we can really take action to improve your outcome over time. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, people always ask me the biggest difference between, you know, how uh, sort of what is genetics versus epigenetics. And, and, and that's what I try and point back to is the ability to change. Um, you know, you're sort of not locked into a, you know, a predetermined uh, feature. You can really change expression and, and, and change some of those readings. And so, uh, so, so I completely agree. Yeah. So why don't we actually define that a little better for people? So genetics, you know, why don't you, I mean, I've told people a million times, but I'd love to hear from you how, you know, your genetic, we'll run a person's genetic panel and it'll give us a certain amount of information, but what's this epigenetic thing? Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I, I, I've tried a lot of, I think, ways to describe it. Um, I think probably one of my favorite ways is, is by first acknowledging that, you know, every cell in your body has the exact same DNA, right? If we were going to take your skin cells and test the DNA, we get the same DNA as we took any other cell in your body. Um, however, you know, there's a big difference in what our skin cells do versus our heart cells, right? There's a massive difference. And so the question is, how do they, how does one look so much different, behave so much different than the other? And, and the answer for that is, is what genes are sort of turned on or turned off. Um, when we talk about that sort of this this expression or the or what we call the phenotype, how a cell looks and behaves, right? That, that is all mitigated by by essentially epigenetic methylation or acetylation, ways to turn on or turn off certain parts of each gene. So your skin is going to be expressing genes that you wouldn't find expressed in your heart cells, and that's good. That's exactly what we would want <laughs> because that's the phenotype that you want, right? And so um, it, it, and so. So every cell has the baseline DNA. Epigenetics just sort of regulates what is turned on and turned off. Um, and, 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 and I think that's hopefully the best way to look at it. Um, but also knowing that the changes in those epigenetics, it can also be changeable, right? Is it that are, are sometimes, uh, you know, under certain types of stressful conditions, we might upregulate or turn on certain other genes that we would, that we want our body to express versus, you know, other times we might turn certain genes off. Um, and a really good example that I always like to point out is, you know, for instance, oncogenes and, uh, um, you know, genes that would might cause cancer or tumor pr- su- 
suppressor genes. You know, we would really want tumor suppressor genes to be turned on. So we, we limit any tumor growth, but we want oncogenes or genes that might cause proliferation of cells to be turned off so we don't develop cancer. And so, so there are many examples of what genes should and should not be turned off, but it's on a cell-specific basis. And so that's really how we have to look at the lens of epigenetics. Great. Amazing. And it's, and it's ultimately this statement of fact to people that what you do is what is ultimately going to, in many cases, affect whether a gene gets flipped on or off. Sometimes you want it off, sometimes you want it on. And so it's, it's getting to the finer points, which is a yeah. great point. So you mentioned a word in there, and we talked about this before the podcast. So let's clarify to people this whole methylation issue, because I think there's a lot of confusion. People are like, oh, it's a DNA methylation test that's going to tell me my age. Well, oh, I've got this MTHFR. A lot of yeah. people will call it mutation. I like to care, call it a variant, <laughs> yeah. or whatever the case may be, because it is what it is. It's not always bad, but... Can we define, can we help people to distinguish between what we're looking at with a true diagnostic test and what you're looking at when you're looking at your MTHFR genetic, yeah. you know, genomic? Definitely, definitely. You know, this is, this is again, another one that I've tried multiple ways of explaining, but I think that, um, you know, we first have to talk about the way that genetic expression is controlled, right? What genes are turned off and what genes are turned on. And, and generally, most of the epigenetic expression is mitigated by two types of changes. Um, and, and, you know, this is probably an oversimplification, but with that That's being okay. said, uh, <laughs> you know, generally genes are turned off whenever you attach a methyl group to them. Um, yeah. so, so what happens is you have this sort of uh, um, inhibitor of, of the process that prevents transcription factors, the things that turn, you know, your DNA to RNA and your RNA to proteins, uh, that, that doesn't happen with methylation. So methylation can be thought as an, an activation of, of gene activity. Um, and, and mammals in particular uh, have a lot of methylation as sort of the default uh, uh, status uh, for, for a lot of our genes. And so the, the inverse of that is generally epigenetic acetylation. Um, and so we're talking about two very small molecules here. Methyl group is just one carbon. You know, acetylation is, is, a, is actually a charged molecule. And so what this actually does is it, when it attaches to certain parts of your DNA, much like magnets, that charged molecule can actually push open the configuration of these proteins. And so it sort of think of it as a, ma a reverse magnet that just sort of opens up. Um, yeah. And by doing that, it allows those, those transcription factors, the thing that produce mRNA to produce proteins, to come in and be active. And so, so generally, there are two sides of the same coin, gene de uh, you know, deactivation versus activation. Um, and so what we're measuring is actually the, the methylation, sort of what genes have that methylation group attached, um, and, and, and then correlating that to outcomes. So that's a little bit different when we, than the SNPs you might look at for MTHFR. So, so MTHFR SNPs have been associated with a, a variety of, of different uh, negative health consequences from you know, uh, osteoarthritis to cognitive dysfunction. Um, and so uh, that, that is sort of looking at your ability to convert um, to be able to create these factors which allow for methylation. So a lot of the same factors that, that essentially would methylate your DNA um, uh, might not be optimized. And so a lot of times those people might have to supplement with, with some type of, 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 of nutrient to help their methylation process. But, but 
it's, we're not looking at that whenever we're talking about methylation. What we're looking at is what is on your DNA um, instead of sort of what is your, your ability to methylate. Um, and sometimes those are connected. We might get into that as we talk about treatments uh, um, yeah. in, in, in studies, you know, they, they, it, it might be associated particularly for women, um, but, but there are two separate processes. One sort of is the biochemical process. The other one is just sort of a um, sort of reading your DNA for what is turned on and turned off. Okay, cool. Amazing. Um, I'm glad we, we <laughs> clarified that. So when we first talked and we talked about setting up this podcast, you, well, I guess, uh, where are we going to start? So the true diagnostic test. And so the, the main, the main test that you do establishes a person's biological age versus the chronological age. So your chronological age how many times have you been around the sun? What does it sh what shows on your passport and your your driver's license? That's your chronological age. Your biological age is the age that is reflected by your DNA, by the cells in your body. In essence, and I think a really nice way of putting it, it's your rate of aging. So are you yeah. aging faster or slower than your years on this earth? Right. Yeah, it, absolutely. And, and that's actually a very, very good way to put it because it's actually the age acceleration versus chronological age that determines risk. And so, uh, you know, some people, it, it's not your overall age that matters. It's your age in relationship to your chronologic age. Um, a lot of the times I should say. And so, um, so that, I think that, that, that's well put. Um, and, and, you know, going back to it, there, there have been ways that people have tried to really find out the age of your body for a long, long time. Um, you know, it, it's been, uh, <laughs> you know, very, very crude ways. Uh, like, uh, you know, one of my favorite examples is, is, you know, uh, sort of taking your chronological age and adding one year for every pack a day you smoke, right? Uh, you know, that, that was at one point a calculation for biologic age. And, and then, you know, over the years, they've become a little bit uh, more diverse in, 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 in ways to do that. Uh, things like telomere length has been a very, very common way to do that over the past decade prior to this methylation measurement. Um, but but uh, I always sort of say that, uh, this methylation measurement is, is definitely one of the most exciting because it gives us a level of accuracy we haven't had previously. Um, it, it is very, uh, I would say, specific um, for, for being able to tell things like chronologic age, but even beyond that, being able to predict disease outcomes that are associated with age. And that is really where we get into the powerful, uh, sort of why it's so powerful for healthcare applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this, this whole link to outcome is I mean, that's the money, right? That's yeah. what we were talking about before. This is where, this is what makes this, this test so valuable um, to any person is not only are you going to get, a, you know, a, a, a score, if you will, or, you know, a statement yeah. of where you're at. But, you know, when I looked at my report, it was full of information, like different categories of different areas to improve and things to do. I mean, in my case right now, that wasn't a whole lot. I mean, apparently I've done a lot of things. This biohacking business is working out for me. But <laughs> I just better watch out when I cross the street because apparently it doesn't prevent me from getting run over by a bus. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but um, but, it, but the, the test, the, the information that you give people is very rich. But before we get to that, <clears throat> You, we so Horvath clock and Dunedin study. Which one do we talk about first? Because oh, you yeah. use the Horvath clock, which was developed by Dr. Horvath. This whole area of DNA methylation age yeah. was really developed by him. 
Um, and then there's this Dunedin study, which is, which informs a lot of what you're doing. So I'm going to let you pick which one leads to what. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I think if you don't mind, I might even take a a step back just a little bit further, which is, which is, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, this, as I mentioned, you know, the accelerations and how we actually conduct this information gathering, right? How do we actually look at your DNA to find methylation really sort of started in the late 2000s. So right around 2009, they started to see a little bit of a link between methylation and age. And so they thought, hey, this might be something to explore. And that led to sort of Dr. Horvath's really work in 2013, which was very, very exciting. So he he sort of took that idea and, and made it a little bit more robust with sort of a, um, in a different fashion. What he did was he sort of collected methylation values from uh, a large group of people and then compared to that, it sort of trained it to predict chronologic age. So it sort of looked at all of the methylation locations in the DNA and said, which of these factors change most with age and how do they change with age? Are some, do they increase methylation or do they decrease methylation? And so what he found is he sort of isolated the 353 loci that were most highly correlated with change with age. Um, And then through some mathematical manipulation, they were able to sort of create a predictive algorithm, which basically the input of that predictive algorithm is the percentage of methylation at 353 different locations on the DNA. So, so for, if we test, you know, your DNA, we're testing multiple copies, some are methylated, some are not. And so we get zeros or ones, right? And then we divide that sort of by the number of, of DNA copies um, to get your percentage of methylation, which is called the beta value. And that is plugged into an algorithm, which is able to then predict your chronologic age. And so that was sort of the first algorithm, Dr. Horvath, and, and hit, that was particularly exciting. Um, you know, I, I say it often and continue to probably preach uh, preach this, but I think he'll win a Nobel Prize for this. And the reason being is because um, obviously we've talked about the impact of age just generally in all disease. But in addition to that, what has sort of been validated in the years since 2013 is that that this is maybe even, um, you know, this methylation is actually not just a correlated to age, but actually might be causative to aging. Um, so, oh, wow. it, so it looks like, yeah, which is, you know, incredibly powerful. And actually the, the same across his, his tissue, his original clock, is the same across almost every cell in the body. It can actually work in, you know, in, in, in most different types of cells, but also in most different animal species. And so as a result, it's something that's been conserved in our biology um, to, to sort of predict this aging process or, or even cause this aging process. And so, so even today, Dr. Horvath will still say that this, this process, um, it, methylation is absolutely causative of the aging process and the aging related outcomes that we all face, which aging itself is defined as this progressive loss of function. And so, mm-hmm. so inherently it's a negative thing. Um, and, and so uh, with that being said, so he sort of, this was more exciting than we even thought it would be because instead of just being a, a mathematical correlative, it looks like it might even be causing that process. And that's very, very exciting. But but just to sort of talk about it, those original clocks were not uh, they, they were tra- trained against this idea of chronologic age. So the age, obviously, I li- love the idea of the number of trips around the sun. I will definitely <laughs> use that again in the future. But, um, but, but that is sort of what it was trained against. And, and honestly, in, in things like forensics, that's a great thing. But in things like health, it's probably not because mm-hmm. if we would just wanted to know your chronological age, what we could do is essentially just ask you, right? Um, and so what we really are interested in is in how this relates to predicting health outcomes. And so, so th- the first generation of clocks were trained against chronologic age. The second generation of clocks like PhenoAge and GrimAge were and, and, and Dunedin as well, which I'm very excited about, were trained against um, phenotype outcomes. So like diseases and and the ability to develop a chronic disease or to have worse quality of life. 
Um, and, and those were even more powerful at predicting reading your DNA to predict these outcomes. Um, and, and so so the Horvath original clock is still, you know, very, very exciting. Same with the Hanum original clock for one reason, which is that that um, we are able to link even those scores to propensity for health outcomes. And those have, for almost any trial that's been looking at large data sets and how the age relates to health, uh, that, that's been reported on for those algorithms. So we know so much about those algorithms in terms of how they impact health. And generally, almost always across the board, the, the, the older you are compared to your chronological age, the worse off you are. Um, again, I, I say this all the time as well, but one of my favorite statistics is that for anyone who reverses their epigenetic age by seven years, you mm -hmm. essentially cut, you, you would be able to cut disease in half. 50% of people would no longer have types of sickness. And, and so that is, you think about that, you know, it's, it's uh, if you're able to cut disease in half for the entire world, that would be amazing. Um, yeah. and, and that is what we're, that's what we're talking about here because seven year age gaps, as you, as you know, are not, uh, you know, not necessarily all that rare. Um, mm -hmm. you, can, you can actually impact it and, 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 uh, and doing so across the population would have a major impact. And so the, the Horvath algorithms are, were groundbreaking and give you this idea of biologic age, uh, but there've been even better developments, uh, and which is, I think, <laughs> one of my favorites of that is that definitely that Dunedin PoAM study. Okay, so let's talk about the Dunedin PoAM study. I mean, what amazes me is that in 1975, somebody had the idea to look at a bunch of three-year-olds and measure yeah. their telomeres. So, ugh. But kind of yeah. mind blowing, right? So, so let's Definitely. talk about the Dunedin study because this was in New Zealand, right? Dunedin, New Zealand, yeah. and right. um, Ryan, go. <laughs> yes, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I can talk about this one for forever because I think it's one of the most exciting because, uh, you know, um, first off, overall biological age is, is a great metric, definitely something you should know, but but oftentimes it might not reflect what's happening now, you know, especially yeah. I always talk about this with a lot of our physicians, right? A lot of our physicians who have been through medical school and residency where they're not getting much sleep, they're probably not eating the right diet, they're no probably kidding. not getting the right exercise. So they might be accumulating a lot of these, these markers on their genome, which are not ideal, right, due to lifestyle and behavior, which might accelerate the aging process. But, you know, you know, once they get into this functional medicine world, they might actually see that that they're doing the right things. And that might be changing their their rate of aging, but it might not be able to be detected on their overall biological age because they might have accumulated so much prior damage. Um, and so, so you, this is a, the Dunedin POEM, it doesn't look at overall biological age. It gives you a pace of aging, an instantaneous rate of aging. So how many biological years per year are you aging right at this moment? And that can be, especially for people who even have advanced biological ages, they might see that their rate of aging currently is, is low. They're, they're aging, you know, maybe 0.8 biological years oh. per year, which allows us to sort of say, hey, you might have some unfortunate markers in your past, but what you're doing right now looks pretty good, right? Uh, and so okay. we can sort of separate out the overall picture versus the instantaneous picture. Um, but, but even beyond that, this study was sort of calculated and has taught us a lot about aging. Um, as you mentioned, this, this study was starting in 1975 with, with, with three-year-olds, um, over a thousand three-year-olds. And, and really every year they took biomarkers of aging um, until uh, as recently as last year. Um, and they're going to continue this cohort until they pass away, um, which is really, really exciting because what they have found is is sort of fundamental to how we understand aging. Whenever, whenever Duke, uh, uh, particularly the Moffitt uh, lab in uh, Duke, 
sort of applied to the, the NIA, the National Institute of Aging, to study this population, the, the NIA essentially laughed at them and said, there's no way you're going to see aging, de detect aging rates in the young patient populations. And if you do, it won't be significant to outcomes. Um, and so they, they decided not to fund the project, but, but they went all along with it anyway. Um, and, and what they found was pretty amazing. Um, so, so they took all these age-related biomarkers to create this rate of aging. And what they found is that even the rate of aging at age three years of age, so these, these people who are three years old, could actually predict outcomes at age 45. Um, things like retinal imaging scan, like venula caliber, uh, things like gait walk speeds, uh, and, you know, and even things like mental processing speeds. The, the higher the aging rate was at age three, the worse off than you were at, at, for some of those outcomes at age 45. And that means that aging is determined even early in our life, not necessarily what most people think of as, you know, when people start to age in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, it, it, is, it is something that actually can even happen immediately and, and something that can be managed. And we, what we've also found is that childhood adversity, you know, things that are, you know, you know, the poor lifestyles, socioeconomic disadvantages, um, environmental disadvantages, even at young age groups can affect the aging rates of, the, of, of, of children, which then leads them to be way more pre predisposed to diseases as adults. Um, and so, so it sort of shook this idea that aging only happens when you're older. Aging happens almost immediately. Um, and, and, uh, and so it created this rate of aging, but I, you know, it, it, one of the, my favorite parts about this is also how predictive it is of different health outcomes, even today. Um, you know, if you look at this data set, uh, you know, your rate of aging is able to predict, you know, things like your balance at age 45, your grip strength, your, your uh, IQ um, and your, your cognitive decline. It's able to predict your surface area of your brain. And one of my favorites, if you don't mind, I might even love to show an image. Yeah. Uh, you know, th this is one of my favorite images. Um, oh yeah, from this, that's a good image. This, yeah, right? It's because, you know, a lot of times we talk about a lot of abstract things um, you know, when we talk about this, like percentages of risk and et cetera. Um, but th this is actually all of these people in this picture are age 45. Um, so they're all the same age. Uh, but what you find is these are composite images taken from this patient population. And the, the individuals on the left have a slow aging rate. And that is what they look like versus the individuals on the right, which have a fast aging rate. And that is what they look like. So, so aging is, is not just health related. It's even aesthetic related. Um, in terms of um, in terms of phenotypic appearance, and so uh, the idea here is that if you control your aging rate, you get your aging rate as low as possible. You get your biological age as low as possible. You don't only prevent you know the onset of diseases and, and and increase your lifespan, but you also improve your quality of life. You have better muscle strength. You have better balance. You have better IQ. You better have you have better facial appearance. Right, all of these things which people associate with you know, uh, uh, a, a thriving lifestyle is also associated with aging. And so this is one of my favorite algorithms. And the whole idea here is to keep your aging rate below one, okay. uh, st stay as low below one, as low one as possible. So I have a question here because, so we said that, um, sorry, something came up on the screen that distracted me. So what we're saying is that at three years old, let's say that, you know, little little Betty um, had an advanced had a faster rate of aging. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that and when she's 45, we're seeing that reflected. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that there's nothing she could have done to slow that rate of aging? Like, so this is what I don't get, because what we're telling people really is we can we can have a positive impact on this rate of aging. We can, we can slow it down so that it's like the med students, right? The med school students, right. they, their rate of aging would have accelerated through med school because they have such a miserable life. 
And then hopefully <laughs> if they chose the right field of medicine, <laughs> um, yeah. they're now taking better care of themselves. They have a better lifestyle. So they would, they would hopefully start to slow that down and basically reclaim some lost ground as they go. Yeah. But, but in this cohort of a thousand three-year-olds, whatever their rate of aging was at three remained at 45. So does that mean that they can't re regress? Yeah. Like, am I, am I missing something or is it just that they were completely unaware and they're all living? The crazy <laughs> <style>? <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you're not missing anything at all. They, they, but you're, but it's a good question because the, the um, I should say that, that with these, this group of patients, it's just a longitudinal study. They weren't recommending any type of intervention or any type of even management. Right. Um, and so they were just sort of observing. And so, um, so, you know, it goes back to this idea, which is that, um, you know, uh, damage and, and change is, is always easier to prevent than to fix. Um, right. And, 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 and that, that's, you know, the same for, for aging things like organ damage, for instance, like kidney damage or liver damage. Sure. It's, it's a lot easier to prevent it than it is to fix it. Um, yeah. And it's the same with the, the, these, uh, you know, these patients, uh, you know, uh, we know a lot of epidemiological trends, like things like depression, things like, uh, like, as I mentioned, lower socioeconomic stress, higher perceived stress, th mm -hmm. those, all of those things actually can, can mitigate, I should say, can, can uh, sort of uh, manifest themselves in worse aging rates. Uh, you know, depression has been shown to, again, make you older. Uh, same with PTSD, same with, um, you know, uh, just, just about everything that we consider ourselves in this environment. And, 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 it's, and it's not just a mental thing, I think. It, it is actually a physical manifestation, right, as we look at these epigenetic markers. And so, so, uh, so the idea is that, that if, you know, people with better childhoods are less likely to have a lot of those factors, which might predispose them to faster aging. And usually, unless those things are, you know, are, are changed or managed, then then there's not a lot of things you can do to fix them. But if you know where you're at and make a concerted effort to find out what works for you, then you can change those things. Right. Um, and and, uh, and particularly change a lot of these aging markers. Um, and, and so the, the idea is that, that as we learn more, we'll be able to make recommendations on what are the best things to change each of these metrics. Um, and, and it is important to note that each of these, these algorithms are, are going to be independent of, of each other. They've all been trained in a different way. And so they're not perfectly correlated. Um, but what we can say is that if you, you know, see a, a really low rate of aging, you can most likely expect that your, your overall biological age will become improved uh, over time. And, and so, uh, so they're not directly correlated, but, but they do have, uh, I would say, some link, which is very, very positive because you, uh, you can't look at anything just as a, you know, you have to look at the whole body as a whole. And hopefully that's what we can do with this type of testing. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. But I guess I guess then they didn't in this cohort of thousand people, they didn't then look at I guess did they at all look at did anybody was anybody who was had a higher, faster rate of aging at three, yeah. had anybody successfully slowed that down without even because they just happened to, you know, maybe this person lives a an amazing outdoor lifestyle and isn't super stressed because, you know, all of those things like depression, PTSD, what you're really describing is stress. And Absolutely. when I interviewed Bill Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence, you know, a, a couple of months ago, when I asked him, what is the single one single thing aside from smoking and drinking and, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah. Like, what's the one thing that you would say ages people faster and he, he said stress, like stress is, yeah. and we know that stress changes the expression of our DNA. Like it literally has a physiological 
chemical yeah. effect on our bodies. But I guess going back to the question that I've now lost in my wormhole is, <laughs> is did they find that any of these three-year-olds that had a more advanced rate of aging actually at 45 had managed to reclaim ground? And in this case, it would be inadvertent because nobody told yeah. them anything yeah. because they lived a better lifestyle. You know, and unfortunately, I wish I could answer that, but I don't, we don't honestly know. don't. I don't know the answer. Yeah, um, I, I definitely will relay that and, and try and get back to you. But, uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm certain that, that that for at least one person that that was the trajectory, right? I I think that that like is on a uh, thousand. You would think yeah, there's a couple. It, it, exactly. I just I I would assume. Uh, and, and so you know, I think that uh, you know it it is. Uh, the good news is it's changeable, but I, I don't want to, to obviously discount stress. There are a couple oh, of interesting no. statistics about stress that I would love to talk about. In particular, yes. uh, you know, in particular of the, you know, the 353 loci that Dr. Horvath incorporated into his first algorithm, 85 of those are located at or near glucocorticoid receptors. Um, and, and so we know that, that particularly stress and cortisol can play a major impact. You know, one of the first ever interventional trials, the one I mentioned sort of got me excited in this space, yeah. uh, used, used a cocktail of drugs, three drugs, metformin, growth hormone, and DHEA. It was yeah. called the TRIM trial to right, re, you know, encourage thymic rejuvenation um, and use the DHEA and metformin to, to help with the insulin resistance that sometimes happen with growth hormone supplementation. Um, and, and so uh, interestingly enough, they, they had only nine patients over the course of a year and a half. They showed really great clinical results, including reversals of this epigenetic aging process. And so that was exciting. Um, and, you know, thinking about it, you would, you would probably imagine at least first off that growth hormone had the most impact and then maybe metformin and then way down the line, maybe some DHEA, um, you know, but in, our, in our, some of our data sets, as we're starting to collect a lot of data from a lot of different patients, we're starting to see that we don't see a conclusive difference with with metformin, which is unfortunate because, you know, we were really hoping it might be the first drug approved for an anti-aging purpose. Um, and, and we've known, you know, uh, and unfortunately in some of the larger data sets as well, we, we maybe are seeing that IGF-1 and growth hormone might be actually negatively correlated with, with aging, which might make sense as we know that people with higher IGF-1s and growth hormone oftentimes have lower lifespans. Um, uh, but, but one thing we are seeing are positive effects with those people who are seeing DHEA. And so this is not at all, I would say, worthy of a clinical publication yet, but just trends that we've seen within our own data um, that, that's looking like DHEA might have the biggest impact and maybe might be having the biggest impact because it limits the effect of cortisol or those stress hormones. And mm -hmm. so, so surprisingly, uh, you know, you would not have anticipated that that might be a main driver, but, but it, we were getting some interesting results that might sort of question hierarchy in terms of importance of that drug cocktail. Interesting. Well, it's interesting because I started taking DHEA last year. I wonder if that had an impact on my, on my results. So before we go on, the growth hormone and IGF-1 and mm -hmm. longevity discussion, I think is really interesting because Absolutely. you get all these people that seemingly become fixated on restrict protein lower IGF-1, lower growth hormone so that you can live longer. And I'm sitting there going, well, why would I want to live longer if I'm going to be a noodle? Like, yeah, <laughs> like there's yeah. got to be a middle ground here. And, yeah. and I wonder how much of this dialogue is with people overdoing growth hormone and therefore generating higher IGF-1 numbers because they think that more is better versus what the real discussion should be is what's the sweet spot for growth yeah. hormone and IGF-1 so that we can maintain lean muscle mass and an ability to recover, repair, and rejuvenate mm -hmm. versus driving it down so that 
you become a hot, like a raisin or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I mean, I, I mean, I can completely agree. And I, I wish I had a, a stance on this, right? I, well, I, I wish we don't know what the number that. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody you know. knows what the number is. I just, I get so tired of, of like, I, I, I get a little exasperated sometimes and, and not with you at all, but I just, I have people who come in and go, Oh my God, growth hormone, IGF one, the devil. And I'm like, hey, you're going to have to mitigate. You're going to have to moderate that position a little bit. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's, it's it, I hate to say it, but we're also maybe starting to see some similar trends with things like testosterone, right? Where we know that that maybe androgen representation might increase that aging, right? We, we know for a fact that women uh, tend to have lower biological ages than men, um, which again, makes sense as they tend to live a little bit longer, right? But the, the I think that uh, I want to make two, two big points. One is that the, these ideas of, of, you know, health span and lifespan not being congruent is sort of a false dichotomy, right? You can have both. Uh, yeah. and, and, and things like this rate of aging with, with this Dunedin poem show that by showing you that, that, you know, balance, grip strength, all of those things which make a good quality of life, including mental health, um, are associated with rates of aging and that the better your rates of aging, the longer your lifespan. So I, I don't necessarily think that they're conflicting, but there might be some treatments which, you know, you want to find that sweet spot for. I think that testosterone is another one where you can see great improvements in quality of life, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, things with, with you know, uh, mental health or a sarcopenia yeah. or, or a variety of things. Uh, but we might see the higher androgens across life span might increase the aging rate. And so, you know, we are, uh, we, we still don't know, but the idea is that, that both are important, right? You know, you can't, can't discount health span for the sake of lifespan. You can't discount lifespan for the sake of health span. And so, uh, so the idea is that let's find clinical biomarkers like this Dunedin and poem rate of aging, which can inform us, uh, I think a little bit better on where that sweet spot is. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, so it's not a, not a question as much as a, a you know, a, 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 a very well-informed decision. Yeah. And it becomes a target and there may be variation in that from person to person. I think we see that in hormone replacement therapy where there's not a number that everybody needs to shoot for. Like you see guys with testosterone levels much lower than others that feel great, look great, perform amazing. And then other people need to be like at 800, 900 or sometimes higher, or maybe they're overdoing it. Like we don't know, but definitely I think that what I've, what I've seen and learned is look at the number, but then talk to the person and find out what's going, like, how do they feel? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Can, can completely agree. I, you, I mean, and, and you can't discount that, right. It, it is, uh, you know, and, and you never would because again, that, 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 that self, uh, you know, inflection, that, that introspective analysis is, is critical because that is, you're, you're the one living your life, not anyone else. Right. And so, yeah. um, and, and so I can completely agree, but I think that, you know, these things, uh, are going to take us a, a step further to that direction instead of just, you know, categorizing disease as, you know, this, uh, this phenotype, right. Or categorizing success or failure. I think what it allows us to do is, is create these surrogate biomarkers that better represent patient choice uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, making disease a lot less binary, not just sort of, I am healthy or I have disease, but maybe I'm healthy, but predisposing myself to disease by, un, you know, maybe some unhealthy habits here or there. Um, and, and so I, I think that making disease a lot less binary is, is going to be a great thing. And, and I think that this is this idea of aging where, you know, from the moment we're born, we have a disease of aging, right? That, that, that is a good way to sort of view it as, as a lens. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a dark view, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Holding Definitely. your newborn baby in your arms going, you're getting old. 
<laughs> that could be a bit yeah. much, but you know, it does speak a little bit to, and, and after, after this, maybe what we'll do is we'll get to your panels. Cause I think they're really interesting, but it does move into also, I think there's probably a relationship to even the impact of the mater- of the mother's state on the baby baby's even telomere length, right? Um, upon birth, like if she's very, if she's living in very poor circumstances, un- either whether it's unhealthy or just under very high levels of stress because of her environment or her living conditions, auto- automatically that baby, I'll bet you they could have backed up that Dunedin study and started it with newborns. You're, and it wouldn't have been yeah. very different. It's so crazy. We didn't actually, you know, talk about this as maybe one of the topics we would talk about, but I'm so glad you brought it up because, you know, the epigenetics is not just about your lifestyle. It's also, there are things that are inherited epigenetically as well. And it's what allows imprinted behavior um, as well, where, you know, uh, dolphins know how to swim or, or bees know how to locate, you know, the, the queen bee, right? Those are epigenetic things that are passed along by generation. And even most of these original algorithms um, have around 40% heritability, meaning that 40 percent of your age is determined even by your 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 parents and um and grandparents even you know fasting in in particular periods of famine can still be seen epigenetically um in 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 individuals of you know second or third generations and so so there there's no denying that that you can't just look at your own life as as you know what has created your epigenetic score which again is why we try and give so much context in our report you know a lot of our report oftentimes you know there are first of our you know, 13 reports now um, is 87 pages. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of information to give that context because without it, uh, you know, how do you know what you're in control of? I think, mm-hmm. and, and that's really what we we try and stress is a lot of that context, and a lot of it is based on things that you can't control, like you you know how you, did your mother smoke in, in utero? How old was your mother whenever they gave birth to you? You know, um, uh, you know, did did they um, have diabetes? Right? Did they? Do they have some of those other health consequences, which then reflects in your epigenetic DNA? And again, it is not uh, at all, you know, a life sentence. It is changeable, but they impact, um, you know, everyone. Uh, and so those are important considerations as well. Yeah. And it's it's a piece of, the, of your knowledge folder, right? It's exactly. almost like you have a binder and this is the binder mm-hmm. of me. This is these are the challenges maybe that I'm that I have to overcome. And it gives you it can maybe over time it can help to build that roadmap to what is the best lifestyle and what are the best decisions you can make to improve your outcomes. So I just, I do think that what's so exciting about this is to your point, it's the outcome. And as we are where we are now, and we will learn more with every minute of every hour of every day that passes is what can we do to reverse or to change what seems to be a, a roadmap. So now all right. So we could talk for a really long time. <laughs> I tend to say that a lot in my podcast. Um, so let's get down to the, to the reports because sure. you've got an amazing collection of reports. I think it's some of them are really, ex- well, they're all really exciting. Actually, there's the basic report, which gives you the big nut with a bunch of recommendations, but then you've got reports that get much more granular that look at Um, there's an immune report, which I think is like amazing for people to have, especially these days. 
There's a weight loss report, which I think, you know, is going to be the first one to fly. If, if, if there was a sale, it would be the first one to fly off the shelf. There's a smoking one. There's an alcohol. Um, yeah. I know I'm missing a bunch, but why don't you take us through at least top line? You know, yeah. there's the basic. And I guess what you do is you run the basic first and then you run the rest off of it. Right. Yeah. So so the. um the, the idea is that we're we one of the things that we do, I would say differently than maybe some other epigenetic companies out there, is we look at a lot of different locations on the DNA. So we look at over 900,000 locations. And so that's a lot of data. And honestly, yeah. quite a lot of data we still don't know how to interpret. You yeah. know, that's where we're, we're that, and that's the reason we're actually collecting it is not to, um, is, is to hopefully analyze it for whoever does our test in the future. Um, as we learn more about what these, these things are correlated to, we can then uh, understand even better. Um, and, and so uh, the other thing I should mention is that, that although aging has been, you know, uh, the number one focus for epigenetics, it, it is probably worthwhile to, to mention that it can have an effect on many different health considerations. One of my favorite uh, things to mention is that recently a, a test from uh, Grail, uh, 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 a test called Galeri, it's a, a liquid biopsy detect up to you know 20 plus uh, types of cancer before they can be detected in any other way. That is done via using a blood-based methylation epigenetic wow. test. Um, and so that that actually just came out, uh, you know, just a, a few weeks ago. Um, and so so the, the liquid biopsy opportunities are, are incredible, but you can also then have, you know, predictors of Alzheimer's, predictors of, of, of not just disease, but even traits or physical function, right? How, how someone's VO2 max might perform or, you know, how, you know, much muscle mass they might have. And so, uh, so, so this, this is, uh, I, I like the, what you mentioned is sort of almost like a, almost like a book or ledger of your entire life that provides more data because honestly, we can actually even tell if you've been exposed to, uh, you know, how much lead you've been exposed to on your DNA or how many, uh, you know, uh, bisphenol, you know, maybe plastics or, you know, BPA or, you know, those types of things you've been exposed to. And so your body does keep a log and that log, you know, might be, a, you know, a variety of different things, but one of them is definitely epigenetics. Um, and so, so that can be really interesting. And so a lot of the reports we have, um, are not all longevity reports. A lot of them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we definitely believe that that's probably the best value. And, and, and definitely, uh, you know, one of the things we try and prioritize. And in those aging reports, we do things like intrinsic and extrinsic aging, which is a complicated concept. We probably will have to talk about at a different time, but also telomere length. Um, and, and then even the, that rate of aging with the Dunedin PoAM. And, and so, um, so we're able to tell all of those aging related algorithms with just the same data set. But we're also able to, as you mentioned, look at things like, are you likely to respond uh, uh, to caloric restriction with weight loss, um, or you know, we're, we're big fans of caloric restriction for the variety of benefits it has for aging. Um, but some people don't lose as much weight as other people once they go on a caloric restricted diet. That's um, me. And, yeah, that really sucks. <laughs> so I starve yeah. myself and I don't lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, and, 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 and you know, me as well for what it's worth. Uh, but 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 uh, I'm in know, good company I, then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is. Uh, and so we're able to tell even that um, by just looking at these epigenetic signatures. We we uh, were able to tell, for instance, how much you've smoked uh, across your lifetime, or or are you an active, or you're a former, or you are you a current or, or uh, a never smoker. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we can do in that regard, um, and, and those will continue to build. One of my one of my favorites is definitely that immune cell 
uh, subset report where mm -hmm. we actually give you the breakdown of how many immune cells are in the sample that we take, um, right? How many, how many, you know, uh, CD4 cells versus CD8 cells or lymphocytes or eosinophils. Um, and, you know, that's really exciting because, you know, things like your CD4 to CD8 ratio can be indicative of a lot of different diseases. We've actually even recommended patients to do follow-up testing where they've had uh, you know, chronic lymphocytic leukemia or HIV positive tests that they didn't know about because oh we, were able to, we were able to see immunosuppression and vice versa. We've been able to say, you know, even see some, some signatures like Lyme disease signatures or specific disease related signatures. Uh, we're doing a study uh, that's about to be published uh, uh, very soon with Cornell, where we look at the effects of COVID um, longitudinally among patients and how that changes their epigenetics. And what we've sort of found is it doesn't have a big impact on aging, but there is an epigenetic signature which sort of is indicative of COVID exposure, which is very, very interesting. Because even if you haven't had symptoms, we can still see in your epigenetics if you've had that particular virus, which is, which is wild. Wow. Um, and, and so what's, yeah. what's the impact? Do you know or not yet? So, or can so you not, not say? <laughs> so, so I should say, so uh, we, we, we're going to be hopefully publishing the study separately. One is the first one is just uh, on longitudinal COVID. Um, the other one is going to be on uh, longitudinal changes in epigenetics with the vaccine. And so uh, the vaccine data we don't have fully analyzed yet, but we're relatively finished with the uh, the COVID-19 data. Um, and we've been looking at it first and foremost through a lens of aging. Um, and, and, and we know, uh, for instance, things like high senescent cell burden um, can predispose you to worse outcomes with, with COVID-19, which would make sense. And, and, yeah. uh, but what we see from, from these aging algorithms is that, that it doesn't have much of an aging effect. You know, generally, we, we might see a slight non-significant trend for people accelerating aging over 50. But if you're younger than 50, maybe you know, not much of a change at all. And so, so from an aging perspective, we don't see much, but we definitely see an epigenetic signature. Um, and, and, and we're not sure what that means yet. Um, you okay. know, we're not sure what, what, what the changes in, you know, uh, the, the, the low, the low side that have the, the methylation changes across, uh, we're not really sure of the biologic significance or what that means, but, but rest assured, you know, now that we have the, the areas for investigation, we'll do a further analysis to see how, you know, the higher hypermethylated locations or or hypomethylated methylated locations might uh, correlate to, to sort of phenotypic outcomes. Um, yeah. And so, so it's the beginning of our study, but, but that's exactly the type of, you know, this, this biomarker, it's a class of biomarker, which can be incredibly informative to the processes uh, that are affecting everyone on a daily basis. And, and as we learn to interpret and, you know, sort of, you know, get the Rosetta Stone, so to speak, of, of our epigenetics, we'll be able to make a lot more precise recommendations, which will ultimately lead to better health healthcare outcomes in every type of, of, of disease or, or healthcare uh, consideration. That's amazing. So uh, a quick question on the vaccine one. Is it, are you looking specifically at the impact of the mRNA vaccine? Like you're not looking, because your mRNA vaccines versus the AstraZeneca and the J&J, complete, sure. two completely different animals, right? So are Definitely. you specifically looking at the mRNA vaccine impact? We are, we okay. are. Maybe, Which makes sense because it's yeah. got the word RNA in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, to be honest with you, we, we would love to do all of them. Um, you sure. know, but, but it just so happened that it was easier to recruit from our patient population. Um, you know, people have had those too as they were sort of the first to market and a little bit more prevalent. Um, and, and so with, with that being said, uh, you know, again, we, we haven't analyzed that data yet, but we're excited to um, yeah. and, and should have some preliminary write-ups as of, as of next week. And so uh, hopefully you know, as we continue to publish, uh, you know, we're, we're not just publishing on that. We're doing some interesting things with Synalytics as well, um, yeah. where we're, 
We're looking at the effect of disadenum and quercetin on these blood-based methylation markers and saliva-based methylation markers as well um, in order to, uh, to sort of see how that might impact this aging process. Um, and, and so uh, overall, we're, we're, you know, a lot of, lot of developments going on. We have over 20 uh, plus clinical trials at the moment. And so, wow. so we'll continue to, you know, look at, at, at these and hopefully learn from it as we go along. That's amazing. So I have a question for you on the smoking one. So let's say I, you run the smoking test on me and you say, you've not been so good. <laughs> well, you had a few cigarettes at some point in your life. So then what? <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so, so, so then what? <laughs> It's a good question. You know, there's one particular loci, uh, AHRR, it's a genetic loci that um, becomes, uh, changes the methylation according to smoking status. So the thing that we do know is that it does revert after, after time stopping smoking, it does revert back to uh, its methylation location if, if you just do nothing but stop the behavior. Uh, but maybe not all the way. Um, and that's how we're actually able to determine if you, you know, recently or you've stopped smoking, but had in the past, um, you know, it's actually, you know, there, there's a lot of interesting anecdotal things there as well. But, but one of my, my favorite things is that smoking behavior um, is actually highly correlated to mortality in, even independently of, of any of those other biomarkers. Um, just, uh, just methylation at that low side is actually used in the calculations for predicting death in Dr. Horvath's Grimage. Um, wow. Uh, algorithm. And so, so smoking definitely has, I mean, most people wouldn't be unsurprised to know that it has a major impact on health span and lifespan, but, but maybe even more than we know. And, and in fact, actually, even the correlation between telomere length um, can be highly associated with smoking behavior um, as we relates to, to epigenetic methylation from one of, another one of Dr. Horvath's papers. Um, and so, uh, so smoking is an interesting um, is an interesting uh, type of behavior, which has a lot of epigenetic change. Um, and, and we're probably still trying to, to unweave exactly what that means or how reversible some of those things are. But, but we, we know the behavior just as a whole is not great. Uh, you can actually compare that to, as you mentioned, one of our other reports, which is drinking, where we can tell you if you're a mild, moderate, or heavy drinker. Um, and uh, you know that, that's a good one, because obviously patients you know, always like to you know, maybe not tell the truth there. Um, oh, yeah. you know, you or, or they uh, say, well, actually, what I'd like you to define for our audience today, is, <laughs> because I found this super interesting, like I don't drink that. I, like I could care less about drinking personally, but um, what do you define as a moderate drinker? Because I read that in the report and I was like, OK, so like yeah. nobody is a moderate drinker. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know, I actually I'll have to look that up, actually, because I'll, oh, I'll tell know, you. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you what it says. It says yeah. one drink a month. Oh, let's see. Okay. So I should say, so there, there are two parts of the report, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, exactly what I was meaning to bring up, which is that, that, you know, uh, so smoking just generally is not great. Uh, yeah. We, period. We Any smoking. So, yeah. 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 But we do know that there's probably much like, as we were talking about with, with testosterone or growth hormone, there's probably a sweet spot for drinking. We yeah. know that we, we know that, you know, alcohol use disorder is not a good thing for, for epigenetic aging, where people with that diagnosis tend to have 2.2 years uh, older epigenetic ages than those who don't. Um, and, and right so off the bat. Yeah, that, that's not great. Right. And, you right. know, as we talk about two years is significant. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, uh, Alternatively, though, we know that from some of these epidemiological data sets that at least one drink of beer or wine per week, so a total of up to four per month, um, is, is actually associated with better epigenetic aging rates. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and I should say that's only been beer or wine, so we don't know about, you know, other, you know, mixed Vodka, tequila. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, and, and so who knows, but, uh, but, but the data hasn't been gathered yet. But, 
But with that being said, uh, you know, it does have some drinking has some positive benefit and probably thought due to the down regulation of the NF kappa beta, which is one of those inflammatory markers uh, that is not great. Right. And, and, you know, we know that this whole inflammation causes aging or inflammaging uh, yeah. that whole process is not great. So so again, the, the, the good news, though, is that um, that that inflammation process is actually present and linked to our epigenetics, right? And so, so we, we can't actually get, you know, surrogate markers for those inflammation markers via, via epigenetics as well. And so, um, so again, it, the idea is that we might not know yet, but we're getting closer, you know, yeah, and as we gather more data. And so uh, do you see that varying from person to person? Because, you know, like going back to gen genetics, like, like APOE4s, for example, right? Yeah. Alcohol is not their friend, period. Yeah. Uh, someone who's an APOE33, you might say, actually, they're the ones where that one glass of wine Absolutely. once in a while, I, you know, I don't want to say once a day, but let's say once yeah. or twice a week might actually confer benefits. Although I don't think it's like, it's not like taking a great supplement that does something amazing for you. I think it's more a question of it's not going to hurt you. <laughs> like Definitely. you don't, you're not going to do worse if you don't drink the wine. I don't, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's my position. Um, but uh, God, I kind of lost my train of thought on that one, but, but I guess with the alcohol, like, is it, like, do you see it actually having a positive impact or it's just not yeah. having a negative impact? Well, I, I you know, or we it, don't it, know it, yet. It, like you're it's still probably, trying to figure that out. Definitely still trying to figure it out. But, but, but based on, based on, I would say that, that epidemiological data, which is not nearly as good as some of that interventional data where we're looking at the same patient over time, but uh, it looks like it may have a positive benefit. And, and, really? and so, and, and, and again, that might change according to a variety of other factors, right? Like, like for instance, even the age of the person or, mm -hmm. or, you know, what they're drinking or their, their baseline uh, genotype, right? Uh, or, you know, what, whatever they, they might have from, from, a, from an allele perspective, as you mentioned, APOE 3-4 or 4-4 or 3-3. Four, four, uh, so so, so uh, with that being said, I think it brings up a, another really good point, which is uh, how do we set up these investigations in the future to control for those different factors, right. those different factors between individuals? And, and you know, with, with anything diet or nutrition, it is incredibly hard to make sure that these studies are conducted in the best scientific manner. Oh, you my know, God. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. asking people to remember how much they drank in the last six months. Like, good luck with. First of all, everybody, as you said, underestimates dramatically. <laughs> Exactly. Especially the drinkers. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, it, but you're right. So, so, so with those nutrition though, it's, it's, a, it, you know, it's hard, but that might be one of the most valuable aspects of this is, is, is really creating personalized nutrition plans based on individual yeah. epigenetics. And so, so we, I hope we get there one day, but we need a method to appropriate collect. One of the ways to also make sure that data is standardized is to, you know, one of the, one of the, the big problems I think with the human genome project and sort of what we anticipated to get out of it versus what we actually got is that it's only looking at one one picture, right? Just the, the genome, not the epigenome and genome, just the genome. And so yeah. what we're hoping to do is to now stack multiple other biomarkers with epigenetics. And so getting that, that genetic sequence um, and then doing a, an epigenome-wide association study where we can compare the results for people who have this allele versus that allele. Um, and then, you know, but also stacking that into to more complex um, analyses where we're doing the whole multiome, as they call it, everything from genomics to epigenetics to transcriptomics and mRNA to 
to proteomics, proteins and peptides, to the metabolomics, or all the metabolites of all of the processes in your body, and then ultimately to things like, um, you know, the phenotype, what actually manifests, and then throwing in there things like the number of cells you have in your body and the microbiome and the, the ah! as well. And so it gets complicated, but you know, the idea- Thank God that, for AI and big giant exactly, computers. <laughs> you're exactly right. And that, that, I think that's the moral of the story is that, that we're finally at a point from a technology perspective where we don't just that with the that all of that data would be way too much you know for for anyone to analyze it specifically but with now with these computer learning platforms we're able then to make correlations and connections we previously hadn't been and so that is something that not just us but i think a lot of people in the field are trying to do is to create data sets which have all of those different markers all at once and so you can sort of see how one might impact the other um and then have a not just a, a segment of, of human health quantified, but all of those metrics quantified to give you a better individual of the full picture of of, uh, of an individual. And so, so uh, you know, we're at the advent of a, a new type of, of health technology, and that's really exciting. Yeah, no, that's that's really huge. And that was my question actually. It was person to person. Is it going to vary? And the obvious answer is absolutely. And I think the other ohm <laughs> we didn't talk about there is the microbiome and looking how the microbiome the status of a person's and, and, you know, microbiome is so fascinating because we know what good blood sugar regulation looks like, but we have no idea what a perfect microbiome looks like. Right. <laughs> and yeah. like, it's so complex in and of it's, it's its own universe over here that people are still trying to figure out, but understanding and over time correlating the, all of these things with the micro state of the microbiome to see, you know, does the micro state of the microbiome affect your rate of aging. Yeah. And I think both of us would, I don't know half as much as you do, but I'd sit there and go, yeah, it's going to, yeah, but we just don't know what those <laughs> things are to look at just yet. I mean, you probably know some, but yeah. Yeah, you know, it, 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 so there, there are people who are now creating even aging clocks in the microbiome, um, yeah. just, you know, in and of itself. And, and, and you know, that's a good start, right? We want, we want to be able with all of those multidomics to create aging clocks, because then what you're establishing is an aging phenotype. What changes with age? And, and then we can sort of ask the question of why and what happens first. And, you know, all of those other things which can help us establish mechanisms of actions and, and causality. <laughs> um, and, and so, so. So yes, you know, the microbiome, especially is one that I think has been neglected because it's not considered, you know, part of an individual, which it absolutely should be. Uh, you no know, kidding. I think, people, <laughs> I think it's writing the show in some cases <laughs> or all cases. Right? Yeah. And, 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 uh, and yeah, you know, fundamentally important. And so, so, uh, and so hopefully it won't be neglected much longer and we'll be paired with all of those other data sets to say, you know, uh, this, this is what we can learn. And, 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 and one of the other great things about it is it's an accessible tissue, right? It is a, it's an accessible thing to test. And, and so, uh, so, and we're, we're not as lucky with things like, you know, liver biopsies or brain biopsies, which, you know, uh, which are unfortunate. So, so we'll, we'll take the opportunity and hopefully learn a lot from it. Amazing. Okay. So have we talked about all the reports? We talked about smoking, weight loss, alcohol, immune. And so when somebody runs these, are you able, you're then able to, cause I haven't seen the reports on those. I saw the report, like the report on the epi, on the biological aging one is yeah. amazing. Like it's, it's really robust. It's got some great information. It's very upbeat, you know, like it's all mm-hmm. really like, here's what you can do. And as opposed to <laughs> sucks to be you, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, no, just because you had good results. Well, I did have good results. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. But, but. <laughs> oh, no. Um, no, but 
but all these other ones, like, I mean, with the smoke, and I keep coming back to the smoking one because I'm curious, like other than telling someone to quit smoking, um, which is going to be evident, right? But even if like there's there's residual damage on the DNA from previous years of smoking and the person's managed to quit, are you then able to help them, like guide them with maybe some supplementation or certain strategies to try and see if we can kind of unlock the damage or reverse that damage even yeah. partially? So, so unfortunately, probably not from a, I should say at the moment, not from a low size specific standpoint. So we wouldn't be able to say, hey, we want to go into this location and, and, and with this behavior is reverse your methylation to where it was. Um, unfortunately, we can't do that. But what we can do is, is, you know, for instance, for smoking would also then increase epigenetic aging. We can say, hey, you know, this, 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 this epigenetic aging, we can change by these nutrition, these, these types of things based on the data we have. And, 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 and I think that, that eventually that's where this is going going is what can I do to change it? Right. What are those yeah. things that, what are those things that we know will have, you know, that, that I can, I can implement my lifestyle and then retest in a year and say, this is, this is the progress I made from this change. And, and that is unfortunately uh, one of the biggest restrictions of this technology at this time, just because it is so new. Sure. So right now there've only been five interventional studies, you know, uh, uh, looking at what changes that, but we know a lot epidemiologically and that's a good start, but but we'll start to add a lot more data from, from interventions, you know, things like, you know, uh, dietary interventions, medications, uh, procedural things. Um, and, and once we start to know that, we can then also look at the, not just the changes to these epigenetic age algorithms, which are very, very important, but also changes to um, sort of, I, I would say, the overall picture uh, on, on how each intervention is changing loci that we're not even including in our algorithms right. and seeing what that is connected to as well. Nice. Um, and I guess in, um, cause your, your test is the test that's being used with, with, uh, by Dr. Bill Lawrence in his clinical trials that he's running right now with the bioregulators, which I've, we've, there's been a, I've published two podcasts with him now. Um, cause we had to split it up into two. We had to do one on DNA methylation and one on the telomeres just cause there's so much material to cover, but with, are you guys at all tracking or is there any attention being paid? For example, let's say he has someone whose biological age, no, chronolog no biological age is advanced. They, they're a smoker. So on that smoking lo loci, we're, we're seeing changes. He may, he may then direct them to use certain bioregulators like the lung bio, there's bioregulators specific to lung and this and that. Are you guys tracking it all or looking at all to see, okay, this person's been using these bioregulators. Has this had an impact on specific loci? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Or loci. Yes. Is it loci and, or loci? You know, I've, I've been been corrected when I've said loci, but I'm, I'm not actually not sure. So I just- L-O-C-I, that. that, that's the position. <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, I, I think both both are, are work for me, but um, but the answer is yes, absolutely. So so uh, that's one of the big values of these, these large data sets is that we're able to then take an analysis beyond the aging algorithms for, for additional insight into how these things are having mechanisms of action and so on and so forth. And so, uh, you know, one really good example was we, we actually are about to publish on um, a particular supplement. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's uh, something involved in the NAD pathways. And, and, and what we've been able to do is actually uh, do a whole genome wide association to look at 
which genes are upregulated or downregulated via methylation. And, 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 and so unfortunately, we sort of first did this um, with a small group, and we didn't see much change from those aging algorithms. But whenever we did the, the association of which loci were changing from you know, the beginning to the end of treatment, we saw some really, really exciting things. Uh, we, saw, wow. we saw some genes like FOXO4 absolutely light up, uh, which is- Ooh, you know, FOXO4 is, is big. Yeah, <laughs> telomere regulators light up. Um, and, and so so, uh, so the answer is that, that, that you can find some very interesting things, which can tell you a lot about the the, the process that, that is mitigating the positive results of any type of product. Um, and, you know, and, and not just, I would say, uh, it doesn't have to be supplements or drugs. It can also be, fitness, right? Or it can, sure. be, it can be sleep, you know, or it can be uh, whatever it might be. But what we're able to do is sort of say, this is changing. We wonder why. Um, and then dive a little bit further into that investigation. So, so one of the, we actually, one of the, probably the, the worst experiences, if anyone's listening, who wants to do this test, probably one of the biggest friction points of our test is we ask a pretty robust survey whenever you, mm. whenever you first start. And, and um, a lot of the reason we do that is to reflect back things about what might've impacted your baseline score. But the other right. is to get uh, behaviors that you're currently doing, or that you might've added since the last time you took our test um, to, to be able to say, hey, you know, that you know, these 100 patients started DHEA from after their first test, their second test. Let's look at what changed. Let's look at what changed on there, and then let's try and factor out any, you know, other things that that might have changed between these individual groups uh, to find out what what low side DHEA is impacting or right. uh, you know, a variety of those different things. Because once we learn that, we'll start to get signatures for every type of exposure, um, you know, and, and, and then be able to, to correlate that to biological outcomes and, and, uh, and, and not just diagnose, you know, maybe a behavior or, or be able to find some type of trait, but then also be able to say, here's how you change it. If you, or if you're not ideal, or if this is out of range, let's get it back into normal range or to optimal range, I should say, um, uh, instead of just normal. So, so, that, so we're, we're learning those things slowly, but surely. And, and, uh, and as we get more data that that is definitely something we're, we're trying to do. And, and we're also trying to connect with data sets like, um, you know, publicly available data sets like hospital data sets and things to look at how those samples might change. But, but there's no probably better patient population than the people that probably listen to your podcast, right? The Absolutely. Are, yeah. Super interested in their own health and the ones that are, they're doing those investigations on how do I feel with this intervention or this intervention? Um, you know, those, those, those types of people, you know, are, are, are very near and dear to my heart because I consider myself to be one of them. And, and, and I think that the information that they gather, the, the knowledge they have about their own bodies is, is only going to accelerate our search uh, exponentially. And so, so uh, we would love to, 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 to add that more data. And, and hopefully when people do that testing with us, they'll be as, uh, as, as robust and comprehensive as possible. Amazing. Well, and I think you, you, and they're also measuring, right? They're, they're wearing wearables, they're tracking, they're tracking all the things that they're doing. So I think that that's, uh, to your point, it makes them a valuable group of people between the self-awareness, the, the, the tracking of stuff. And, you know, you ask my husband a bunch of these questions and his eyes would glaze over and go, I don't know. I, <laughs> I eat when I'm hungry and I sleep when I'm tired. I, I don't know what you want me to talk to. <laughs> Not a bad philosophy though. <laughs> no, listen, you know, I'd be, we will run his test one of these days. Trust me. I just have to, I just have to get him to hold still long enough and I'll just poke a hole in his finger and off we go. So, Okay, so as we're going to wind this down, why don't we tell people a little bit more about how they run the test? This is this is a blood test. And actually, maybe this is a good time for me to just to talk about 
you know, what are the, you're one of now several companies in this space. Everybody's like, you know, it's like everybody's, it's like the great race, like the, the amazing race. Everybody's like racing to this amazing pot of gold, except we don't actually know what the pot of gold is or where, well, we know what it is. We just don't have any clue where it is, but um how, what are the questions people should be asking of the companies if, if they decided not to go with true diagnostics? What, what are the, how would you vet the validity of another test or not even the village, but you know, the value or Absolutely. that kind of thing? Yeah. So, so I'm glad you asked that question. Cause I, I definitely have some, some very clear and easy recommendations for anyone who's trying to validate, you know, where they want to do this. And, and I would encourage anyone, even if it's not with us, still do this, you know, if, if you can, it gets a, it's a great metric and, and rest assured, we will not be the only group in this, this field for, for, you know, for ever. I mean, I think that yeah. you know, there's, there's so much data, there's so much insights that, that if, if it's just done by one company, we'll never get to where we need to be. And so, so we, we encourage any, I mean, I just, I'm excited about this biomarker, particularly for longevity. But with that being said, um, there are certain things that we would highly recommend people look at. The first being um, a collection method. One of the easiest ways, and I think that that's what, sort of what you were saying as well, is, is that, um, you know, the algorithms themselves are, are only as good as the data set they're trained against. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you really have to ask the question of what, what algorithm is being used and how was it trained? Was it done with blood? Was it done with saliva? Was it done with skin, right? Or what tissue type? Because remember, all of those cells have different epigenetic expression. If we were to use, for instance, even the 2013 Horvath clock on your brain, we get much, much lower ages than anywhere else in your body. It ages at a much slower rate. Uh, if we were to test breast tissue, we get much, much higher ages. And so the tissue type is important and you can't just create an algorithm and then switch tissues and hope it would also still work that same way. <laughs> and so, so there is only one at this point pan tissue clock. And that is uh, the, the Horvath 2013 original clock that I think is, you know, worthy of that Nobel prize. Um, and so, so as a result, all of the other clocks have been validated and created with blood tissue. And so, uh, and those, those, that tissue again, is going to be all those lymphocytes, those immune cells in, in your, in your system. And so, um, so that is the only method that we will use in order to maintain accuracy. Um, and so, so that is a good question to ask is, is, sort of, uh, you know, what tissue are you using and, and does it match the algorithm you created? The second thing I would ask is, is your algorithm published? Because the, you know, it, uh, you know, you could, uh, go to a fortune teller and ask them to tell you what your age is. And, and uh, <laughs> they, they would probably create a guess that, that's semi-accurate. Um, but the idea is that, does that help you? And the answer would probably be no, uh, because what you really want is an age that is correlated to health outcomes. And in order mm -hmm. to do that, the, the only way you can correlate to health outcomes is to do two things. One is to track the same people over a long period of time or to, to uh, use biobanks where they have samples stored, um, do this analysis and then relate it to what happened to those people. Um, and, and so that's how most of these trials have been sort of done where they've looked at, you know, things like the Framington Heart Study and, and taken those blood samples, performed methylation, and then looked at what happened to those people. Um, and, and, and so that da those data sets, because they are encompassed, you know, data over across many, many different years are really hard to come by. And so you really wanna make sure that the algorithm you're using has been validated with something that's publicly accessible because that's also how you compare algorithms to one another, right? Where you can, mm -hmm. can say, hey, the, the pheno age algorithm is better at this than the grim age algorithm, um, where which is better at this, and so so it's able to not only just tell you um, you know how predictive your algorithm is, but it's also able to tell you how it compares against others. And so um, would highly recommend the the both the sample uh, collection method being accurate as well as the algorithm. 
The other is just, I would say, betting on the future, right? As, as I mentioned, these developments are going to be, you know, left and right um, for, for, you know, the next, you know, few weeks and the next few years. And so the idea is that, that you probably don't want to choose a test that just measures those aging algorithms uh, because there's no room to interpret that for what happens in six months from now or, or two weeks from now even. And so you really hopefully would choose a platform that has a lot of data analysis um, so that, that you can continue to learn insights as they come about. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that we chose that, you know, in addition to, to do, just doing research, uh, we, we chose a really 900,000 CPG coverage uh, for the fact that we continue to do updates. Uh, you know, every every new report we have, um, you know, every three or four weeks, we'll issue a new report. Some of the ones we have coming out next are are are, are interesting. Like, uh, you know, are you likely more likely to be hypersexual, um, or are you more likely to have higher degrees of empathy? Um, and, and so, uh, we'll we actually just send those out to anyone who's done our test as soon as those algorithms are, I should say, those uh, those reports are available based on their data set, and we'll continue to do so and, wow. until we can. Um, you get so updates. I, yeah. Yeah. So, so updates and, and, and betting on the future um, in, in large scale data sets, uh, I think, is also very important. So know what what how, sort of the breadth of testing is, know what the collection is and the algorithm is in order to understand how that that those results are going to impact your health. Right. Um, I think that those are my three biggest categories, my three biggest recommendations. And, uh, um, and and once you have those, I think that you'll be able to, to sort of accurately or smartly interpret uh, which which companies to use, but also so what, how, to, how to vet the data once you do get those results in terms of what it means for your actual health. Yeah, amazing. Um, so we didn't, the, <laughs> I had this other question, but I'm wondering if that's going to push us into a whole <laughs> other dimension. So I'm going to ask the question and you can tell me, this is a 20 minute discussion or you can answer it very quickly. So the issue of glycan H mm -hmm. is a whole different kettle of fish, yes? Yes. It, it is uh, it's very, very interesting, but, but at the moment, a uh, uh, completely different topic. It, you know, I would actually even uh, include it as another biomarker, much like, you know, the, um, I, I guess I would mostly be in proteomics uh, because you're glycosylating uh, usually peptides or proteins, um, but, but it is, it's a proteomic biomarker that's that's not been traditionally measured. And so, um, so as a result, it, it would be almost its own class of, of, of biomarker um, and one that definitely looks exciting. Okay, cool, great. That was a good answer and it was short. <laughs> um, okay, listen, I, I've got a lineup of questions in my brain, so I'm gonna stop this right now. Um, and maybe what we'll do is in a few months, it sounds to me like you've got so much information coming down your pipeline that it, we could do another episode in a few months and talk about all the new things that you've discovered and learned and are doing. Uh, so in the meantime, why don't we wrap this up and tell people where they can use, where they can find you, how they can get a test, um, how to follow all the amazing things that you guys are doing. And then we also have a promo code for people where they can save a little bit of money on their test if they decide to step through that door. So I, I know the promo code, but why don't you take away take it away on the rest? <laughs> yeah, so hopefully we'll, we'll post this as well. But but uh, yeah, we will. Goes up. You so we we do offer you know these tests direct to consumer. Unfortunately, they don't include all of the same reports we're able to offer to practitioners. And so if you are looking for that full battery, um, you know I'm sure that, that we can help you find a practitioner who can help you interpret that. Um, but 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 at the very least, you know our website is TrueDiagnostic.com. If you order from us, um, uh, and, and you you can have the option to be enrolled 
all to our newsletters where we'll give you know these scientific updates release papers um you know etc um and and so if you want if you're hoping to do it it's a you know hopefully a very simple test just a few drops of blood send it back to us and in two weeks we'll hopefully uh, you know analyze your results and even connect you to someone to review them if you if you want to as well so you can get your own scientific insight and so um uh, i'm sure that the the, the code will for for the discount i think we're going to be doing uh, at least a 50 dollars discount and in, in order to help us make it more accessible and if there's any other questions that we can ask we we always recommend just going to truediagnostic.com and that's tru uh not t-r-u-e uh so tru-diagnostic.com and we'd be happy to to engage and so um we yeah i appreciate your, your time and having me on and uh look forward to coming back Amazing. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure. And the, the promo code, guys, is longevity12, because I think it worked out to 12% yeah. somehow. So we, yeah. we figured we would keep it consistent somehow. Uh, so thank you, Ryan, uh, for your time today. It's been a great conversation. <laughs> and I've really enjoyed it. And we will definitely talk again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application, just answered a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.